0: have you noticed anything creepy about the twins apart from the fact that they're twins just because they're twins doesn't always make, make them creepy it does a little bit yeah. when i was your age television was called box I don't remember, sings Peter Gabriel, the opening music there. And if we ever find ourselves in the kind of world that's posited in the dazzling, shimmering novel that we're going to be discussing in this episode of the Book Exchange Podcast, you won't have to. So I'd like to welcome everybody to episode 51 of the Book Exchange Podcast. We are back. The BXC twins have returned after a Brief hiatus, and I'm glad to report that we're ready to go on a new episode of this exchange. I'm gonna welcome in my twin brother, wombate, former roommate, former college student, (laughs) my twin brother, John F. Lovell from Easton, Maryland. John, are you there? I am here, and we are back, so it's good to be back. So uh, yeah, looking forward to this discussion. How's it going tonight? It's going all right. Um, I'm dealing with some minor squabbles or little uh, headaches on the side as we go into the podcast here, but we're going to set those things aside. By the way, I said former college student. I meant like uh, my fellow college student because we went to college together, so I'll correct that. But the point <laughs> is, we are, we are back after taking hiatus. There were just some uh, personal things that had to be attended to uh, on both sides, maybe a little more on, on John's side, but we're back now, and we have a really interesting and fascinating episode um, lined up for tonight. Um, we're going to be doing, uh, returning to a episode, the type of episode that we've done a few times. I, I, I used to know this number, but I, it escapes me now, but I think it's the sixth or maybe the fifth of our BXC Reviews episode. So that's a, to just remind our listeners, that's an episode where we take one book and do kind of a deep dive into that book. Although, in this case, John, it's, it's almost two books. Um, and I'll explain right. that. Yeah, I'll explain that right now. Um, so, we're going to be talking tonight and diving deeply into the, the dazzling new novel from um, one of America's most prominent literary fiction voices. We're going to talk about a book called The Candy House, which was written by Jennifer Egan. And if uh, for those of you who have been paying attention and listening to us for some time, you can go all the way back to episode five, where we talked about some of our most favorite female writers, not all of them, but some of them. Jennifer Egan was prominently a member of the list that I created for that episode. I'm a very big fan of Jennifer Egan. And so we're going to talk about her brand new novel tonight, which, which is called The Candy House, and do a deep dive into it. And when I said that, that, you know, it's almost two books, that's because The Candy House, and we'll get into this a lot, I would imagine, has been described as a sequel to her novel, previous novel from 2010 called A Visit from the Goon Squad. It's been described as a sibling novel. It's been described as kind of a sort of a novel with a dotted line to A Visit from the Goon Squad. I'm not sure exactly what the relationship is there, and I'm not even sure that Jennifer Egan is. Um, So we'll talk about that as well. Um, So that is the subject of our episode tonight. Is there anything that you want to say kind of out of the gate about the Candy House or Jennifer Egan, John, or do you want to just get into the uh, affairs of our normal routine? Well, I would just like to congratulate you because I know you've been holding out for this episode for a long, long time and you, and you made it. You finally got (laughs) to it. Congratulations there, but with good reason, because Jennifer Egan is is easily one of the the most interesting writers, I think, working today. I I think uh, we would both agree on that. Uh, Just a fascinating, just a a hungry intellect, I guess I would call her. Um, Really kind of an innovator in the way that she writes her fiction. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting episode. And the way these two books are related is really, I mean, there's no way (laughs) we'll be able to you know explain or expound on that completely there's so much going on in both of these books you know it would take multiple episodes just to unpack it all but we'll do our best but um i know you've been excited to have this conversation for a long time i'm excited to have it too this one should be a lot of fun so you know with that i think we can go right into our our normal uh run of show here the way we do things here at the book exchange podcast right yeah yeah i am very excited i'll so, i'll You know, I think we'll start off in a little bit doing some just more sort of broader talk really quickly about Egan and sort of how we got to her and sort of our general impressions of her. So we'll save that for a few minutes. But for right now, um, I just want to remind listeners, uh, you can get our contact information on all of the uh, podcast descriptions uh, wherever you get your podcasts. There's an email address. And there's also a way that you can leave us a voicemail if you want to. So check those things out if you'd like to get in touch with us, suggest anything for the show. But for now, um, I'll wait to take a break, but why don't we get into talking about what it is that we are reading right now, which is the normal uh, format on our show. So John, I'll kick the ball over to you. Tell us what you're reading. Well, yeah, that's, that's interesting too, that you should ask that question even though that is the format of our show. But I'm reading, uh, I just started reading a collection of short stories that you may have some familiarity with. Um, that's <laughs> right, folks. Um, my brother here is a fiction writer and has been for decades, really, a long time. And he, he just finished, I'm happy to report, just finished a brand new volume of short stories, which is not even out yet. But it's it's forthcoming, I think, in the next couple months uh it's a book called all men are brothers it's a collection of what is it eight or nine short stories i should have done my homework but i didn't how many it's stories eight. in the collection? it's eight okay and um they're all they're all new story well there is one story that's a that's a revision of something that i you know that i happen to know that you you wrote actually many many years ago but you revisited some older material um but, yeah, this is this is an exciting event for both of us, really. The fact that you have a – it's your first – I would say – you know, I was thinking about this. So, you – a couple of years back, I think it's about two years back, um, you released kind of sort of a collected, you know, volume of stories, and then you added about five or six new ones. That was called Door in the Air. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend you. it. You can get it on Amazon. Um, the title story in particular, I've said this on the show before is, is, is a stunner. But, um, I, as far as like your first, you know, the last time you, you, you put out a, a collection of all new stories, that goes back quite a bit, quite a ways. Am I right? Yeah, you are. Technically that goes all the way back to the first collection that I put out. Yeah. Oh, I was, okay. So you have two pre, you have you have that collection of uh, that we just talked about door in the air there's there's uh your first collection of stories was called uh, we'll see you when we get there and then there was one called crowning right right so uh but crowning did crowning have some older material in it crowning had a yeah it was a smaller volume i mean not okay. to get too too derailed but it had a a few older stories in there and then a couple new ones. And in a way, it was a bit of a kind of, you know, um, compendium or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the the first one I did that was really all original stuff, quote unquote, was uh, We'll See You When We Get There. So that goes all the way back to 2013. Well, I'm really excited to read your new one. I just want to shout out, to you know, call out to our listeners. You know, I'm only on the first story, which is the title story called All Men Are Brothers and I, all i can say about it is that it's set during world war ii um but the diversity of subject matter in this thing just sounds really good you know I've I've, I've I've read a couple of these stories ahead of time i happen to know what some of them are about but i mean there's a world war ii story there's a story about the legendary uh, uh punk rocker rock artist uh, lemmy from motorhead uh, there's a story. It's been mentioned on the podcast before when you were working on it. But there's a story about uh, Ron McNair, who died tragically on the, uh, uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger, and that explosion in 1986. Um, there's just all, all kinds of really interesting, uh, interesting sounding stories in this in this volume. Uh, I'm very excited to be diving into it. I don't have too much to say because I just started, but. Um, I really, I really hope that our listeners will keep an eye out for it when it is out in the next couple months. Again, you can look for Jude's all of Jude's books, which are many on Amazon. And I, you know, I can without having read this volume yet. I, I'm a big fan of of your short stories, and um, I'm really excited to dive into this one. I hope, I hope a lot of people out there will check it out. Well, thank you for that, John. I appreciate that. Of course, I knew you were reading it, but I appreciate that you were. Uh, willing to read it of course John is uh, my primary sort of beta re- beta reader although um it's been harder for him in the last four or five years to do that um, just for various reasons he's got you know four active growing children and lots of responsibilities so uh, but I appreciate that you work this in John and uh, yeah I'm very excited about that book I won't really continue to talk about it but uh, I'm really pleased with it, and I hope that you like it, and that I can get it out there, and that some other readers like it. So, thanks a lot for mentioning that, even though I made you. <laughs> and well, uh, I, hey, that's what I'm reading. So, so what do you have for us? Well, I'm re- and then I, you know, I'll I'll make it quick because it's not, um, you know, it's not right down the the middle of the plate, so to speak, in in terms of your interests, John. But uh, I happen to be reading. Uh, I'm reading a nonfiction book. It's a baseball book. I've been doing a lot of reading about baseball and watching baseball because I happen to be my current writing project is I'm writing a nonfiction book that has to do with baseball. Um, it's a series of reflections about some of my memories of baseball as a youth. And then some of the experiences I've had sort of because getting re-engaged with the game of baseball over the last two years, since the middle of the pandemic, uh, and how baseball kind of stepped in and was a way for me to manage some of the things I was going through during the pandemic. So I'm working on that. Um, so the book that I happen to be reading to sort of support or research a little bit, it's a it's a really fascinating book for baseball nuts, which you are not. But it's called K. And it's written by somebody named Tyler Kepner. And the subtitle is um, A History of Baseball in Ten Pitches. And what it is, is that it's a K of course is the short is the baseball short hand for strikeout. And it's uh, kind of exactly what it says. It takes uh, when I, my brother-in-law is a big baseball fan. Uh, Shout out to Jeff, our brother-in-law. And and he's um, he's a guy recommended to me. When he recommended it to me, I thought, well, that's crazy. A history of baseball and 10 pitches. And I thought it was literally 10 pitches like, like, as in like, the knuckleball that Goose Gossage threw in the 1972 World Series to the second batter in the second inning or something like that, you know. And I thought, yeah. how are you going to do that? Um, that's not what it is. It, it, and I should have figured this out, but it examines different kinds of pitches. So the, the knuckleball, screwball, the splitter, the fastball, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it goes through a history of the game by examining each of these pitches. And, you know, being a resurgent baseball fan, I am actually very interested and getting very nerdy about the mechanics of the game. And I I don't know a damn thing, pardon my French, about the differences between pitches and how how pitchers throw them and what they have to do and the mechanics involved. And I am really fascinated by this book. It's really crazy how complicated uh, pitching at the major league level is. And when you think about it uh, in the game of baseball, everything – it's one of the only sports where play – Action begins by a member of the defense doing something and nothing happens in the game at all without the pitcher making a number of decisions first from that little hill in the middle of the field and then choosing a pitch and throwing it. And that's where all the action from baseball proceeds. And so when you look at it that way and you start to get into the history of the pitches and how the pitches function, even from like a physics standpoint, it is nuts. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Cause I, you know, because not everybody's into baseball, but I'm finding it very fascinating and how that translates into what I'm going to write. I have no idea. I really have no baseball cred at all. It's just a subject that I'm really gripped by, but I'm just happy to be reading about it, frankly. So that's what I'm reading. So uh, you have any comment on that, or do you want want to just proceed? Oh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I nodded off. For a second there. (laughs) I thought we were, I thought we were breaking down. That's a good one. (laughs) No, no, I, I, I'm just kidding around. I I was listening. That actually does sound like a really interesting book. And I'm not just saying that for your benefit. I'm not nearly the baseball fan that you are, but that does sound like a, a really interesting approach to, obviously the game has a long history. Um, and I think your, your idea for what you're writing about, I know it's still, you know, in, 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 uh, gestation but I that sounds pretty cool to me you know kind of connecting like you know because I was there for a lot of the early memories that I, I presume are going to come up in the book with dad and you know the way he used to watch games sometimes we would score them etc and then you know jumping forward to this to the pandemic and kind of getting re-engaged that I think that's kind of a cool idea so um yeah that 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 actually does sound like a like an interesting book and it's like in you know if you're if you kind of get into something Sometimes you just dive down the rabbit hole and it can get really like fine and nerdy, but it's a lot of fun, you know. Disco- you know, uh, rediscovering something like that and then kind of really getting into getting into it, you know. And I can I can just hear when you tell me about what you've been watching or what you've been reading that that's been a that's been a lot of fun for you. So that's cool. I think I I, I genuinely think that that sounds like a cool project to be working on. So that's that's great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I need to spend a lot of time working on this book, figuring out what I want it to be. But I would liken it to, you know, and I'll, I'll, I promise I'll stop talking about my own writing. But you remember I wrote, um, it's now seven years ago, I wrote a book about my favorite rock band, which is Rush from Canada. Yeah, I and, do remember. Yeah, this that that book is actually my most successful book. That book has sold the most. You know, around the world, which is interesting, and I'm not. Believe me, I'm not talking about a lot of sales here, but, but I remember when I was writing that book, and here's the connection. I felt I was like, man, I have no business writing about a rock band. I, I, I have no connection to the music industry. I'm not a musician, I'm not a music journalist, nothing. I just really want to write about this group that I love so much, and I kind of went down the rabbit hole. And this is very similar. This is like. And you're right. You can just kind of fall into it. And for me, when that happens from like a writing point of view, I feel like I'm on the right track. There's no warrant for me to write a book about baseball. I mean, there's a gazillion great books about baseball. I don't care. It's just kind of got my mind right now. And that's kind of the attitude I'm taking. So, you know, but anyway, the book K is really it's really fascinating. It's it's a it's a great recommendation. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good stuff. We could we could go on and on and on, but we got a lot to talk about with Jennifer Egan here. So we sure do. So we're going to take a quick break now. Let's do a little music from Void's Panda. My son, Patrick. Yeah. (laughs) And then we'll return to begin our discussion of the Candy House by Jennifer Egan. Don't go away. John, we are back and now we got, we do need to dive right into our discussion of uh, Jennifer Egan's work and particularly the candy house and maybe the sibling novel called a visit from the goon squad. So I'm just going to set this up in a really basic way. Um, Why don't I'll I'll go first, just sort of by necessity. I'm going to just do a little rundown of how I came to Jennifer Egan's work and then I'll ask you to do the same. And then uh, when you hand the ball back to me, I just have one kind of really quick set of question that you're really going to hate <laughs> because it's uh, difficult, but we'll kind of get into it from there. I would just say to our listeners, we have even less of a roadmap on this one than we do on our other deep dives into books or some of our other episodes. Ask us. This material is really hard to encompass in one discussion uh, as we're going to get into. Um, and if anybody checks out or is familiar with Jennifer Regan's work, or checks these books out as a consequence of listening to this podcast. Um, you'll see that as well. I mean, she, there is a lot going on in her books, but um, oh, yeah. just really quickly. Yeah. I got to say, I, I, you know, and you hit on it before, John, I, I'm really excited to talk about Jennifer Egan's work. I joke with my, even my kids know that I'm a fan of this writer named Jennifer Egan, who's uh, sort of generous enough and, and kind enough to, sort of engage with you on Twitter. Occasionally, like if you, if you, uh, tag her Twitter handle and say, you're reading her book or something, she'll say something nice back. And my kid, my older kids have joked with me about that, but I, I I gotta say, I I normally hate this term, but if there's any writer in the world that I kind of fangirl over and I do mean fangirl, like a squealing little fangirl, (laughs) uh, Jennifer Egan is one of those writers. There's not very many of them. Um, and we could talk about why, but I really, in, in all seriousness, I consider her kind of one of my literary heroes, really. And it's just because she writes a particular type of fiction that's, um, and here's where I'm going to get into trouble trying to categorize this, but her books are all very, I would call them filled with kind of a uh, a creative and kinetic energy. She has a very hungry intellect. She writes a different book kind of every time, but she often writes about uh technology and um sort of broader type of topics like the passage of time and how technology and time and the and uh psychology um but in human relationships and she finds really fascinating ways to write about these themes through a series of really amazing novels that she's written they're often episodic follow different characters around doing very different things and these characters and their stories kind of interlock and intertwine in some fascinating ways in, in her books. Um, I first came to her, it was just kind of by accident. I, uh, the first book by her I read was a book that came out, I think it was 2006, and it's called The Keep. And it's come up once or twice here. It's an, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a novel set primarily in like a gothic medieval castle in Germany. Uh, where there is kind of a mystery going on with the inhabitants there, but turns out to be kind of a a Russian doll of a book with several stories kind of unfolding within the story. And there's a lot of kind of metaphysical twists and turns that happen in that book Um, um, and metaphorical twists and turns with the actual keep, with these... medieval castles were built with like a room that was like kind of a the place where you hang out when you're getting invaded called the keep, you know, and, and there's a lot of like really complicated and uh, intertwining plot lines in that story. And I happened to see, I just, uh, I just looked at the Amazon page for that book once I was very fascinated by it. I don't even know how I got there. And then on that page, there was an interview with her and I was reading through the interview and I was kind of, when I read that interview with her, I related so much to what she was explaining in terms of her writing process and her creative process and what she was trying to do in her books. And I remember thinking sight unseen, I got to read this book and I got to latch onto this writer. And it was just by the way she was talking in interviews. And I think you can also vouch, John, if you, I would just say, as a side note, Jennifer Egan is also a very interesting interview or listen on a podcast or in a print interview. If you get the chance and you're interested in her work to, Listen to her talk about what she's trying to do or read an interview with her. You should kind of jump on that. Um, Anyway, I read The Keep, and then I was kind of hooked in from that. And then A Visit from the Goon Squad came out in 2010, and we'll we'll get into it a little bit. But it kind of, uh, at first, was not very commercially successful because it's such a complicated story, but it kind of latched on. So anyway, a, the, a Visit from the Goon Squad came out in 2010. As I was saying there, it, it got um, a good critical reception. It didn't really take off with audiences right away. But then it started to build up uh, and catch on to the zeitgeist. It was like a very buzzy book. And it cruised all the way to winning, I think, a couple major awards and one of culminating with the Pulitzer Prize in 2011, which sort of you know put Jennifer Egan on the map. <laughs> Uh, And she already had been in certain ways. Um, Yeah. And the the National Book Critics Circle Award as well. Right, right. And I remember when that book came out, you know, uh, I think both of us were fans of hers by then. But reading that, it did kind of feel like a game changer. But and and then I was kind of attached to her kind of from there. And then she's also put out um, a couple of other books that uh, preceded that. Um, a really huge one for me was a novel she put out in 2001 called Look at Me, which was, again, a bunch of intertwining stories. Um, one of them had to do with the fashion model. And uh, another one, we're talking about somebody who has a finger on kind of what's going on in the United States enough that her novel Look at Me, this is a good example of the kind of writer Jennifer Egan is, came out within two weeks of 9-11, like it was published right at the same time as 9-11, which was disastrous for, you know, her sales and like her, you know, the publishing industry in general. But the, the novel that came out had an, a Middle Eastern terrorist performing an act of terrorism in the United States in the novel, which was, of course, before 9-11, completely unheard of and wildly impaus- implausible until it actually happened. So Jennifer Egan is the type of writer who can kind of read the tea leaves and come up with something Plausible that can still be kind of world changing, and we'll get into some more of that. So, anyway, that's how I got to her work, and how did you come around to reading Jennifer Regan's work, John? Well, just there's a slight, slight, mild correction. Like there, there was, there was a previous bomb that was planted in the World Trade Center by uh, somebody from the Middle East, I believe. So it wasn't totally unheard of. Uh, You're right. Early- yeah. In the early '90s, but still, yeah, there was a lot of prescience in that novel, which I've also read. Look at me, um, and you know, we can maybe touch on that in a second. Um, but I, I'm like you, I, I, and and you know, it's no accident why I think you read the keep. I know you read the keep first. That was the first thing, as you just explained. You read from Jennifer Egan, and it was just before, either just before, or just just as um, a visit from the goon. I think it was before, but a visit from the good Scott came out and then you read that and we're very excited about that. But, uh, I, I read the keep as well, basically through your recommendation and the keep is a very strange mix of different storylines, which is something that, you know, is a through line for Jennifer Egan's book books, at least for me, she often has a lot of balls up in the air and they're, they're strange. They're often a strange, Kind of mix of elements. There's usually something that has to do with technology. There's usually uh, at least one storyline that has to do with sort of, um, oh, I would say like e- either uh, some kind of um, psychological problem or someone who's maybe dealing with mental issues that comes up again and again in her books. Mm-hmm. And it's no accident that it does because she's been very candid about the fact that. She had a brother who was schizophrenic, who who tragically took his own life. And uh, she's talked about that in interviews that she's done. And that comes up with, you know, uh, people with psychological problems come up again and again in her books, right up to and including The Candy House. So that's interesting. Um, And we'll get into this more, but I remember reading The Keep and thinking it was a really interesting kind of combination of, of stories and plot elements. But it didn't co- cohere for me. You know, I thought it was really interesting, but like kind of on a human level, it didn't sort of all come together for me, which is an mm-hmm. experience I've had with other Jennifer Egan books, like Look at Me as Another Example. Um, but uh, she definitely, you know, there's definitely, uh, I really admire how she, again, tends to throw up many, many balls in the air and kind of see and juggles them in interesting ways, And um, so she's a really sort of intriguing writer who's tries thing. I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of another writer who writes the same way she does. And we'll get into this more, but you know, I was, I was fascinated with the keep while at the same time there are elements of it that weren't totally satisfying for me, but there's something about, you know, how just sort of curious she is that is appealing to me. So that was how I first came to her. And then I, I, uh, Read a visit to the goon squad a visit from the goon goon squad sorry and you know it sort of goes from there but we're gonna like you said we're gonna talk about a visit from the goon squad and the candy house lot so that was my first sort of introduction to her was the keep yeah and she had yeah and I I remember talking to you both with the keep and with look at me which you read at different times but you know we were you know we always found her work to be discussion worthy once we both started reading and i remember you not it neither one of those book, books you know really worked for you and i remember talking with you about it cuz i would i was very much of two minds i i liked them both better than you'd like them but i also could see and i think this applies to most of her books really you could see how certain types of readers would struggle to Um, I guess, grasp the connections that she's drawing between these sort of divergent themes and storylines in many of her books. Uh, None of them, like, including The Candy House and Visit from the Goon Squad, in a way, like, really fully connect tightly. You know, like, um, they have this kind of episodic feel, but it's sometimes hard to figure out, you know, how they all fit together or how everything works. But I remember for me, and this has been my experience with all the four books that we've mentioned so far, Look at Me, The Keep, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and The Candy House. I felt such a powerful sort of creative creative energy and hunger for like information, but not just information, kind of like, almost like a philosophical type of longing beneath all these stories of Asking kind of meta type of questions, the same type of questions that the reader is asking in a way like, how does all how does this all fit together? What does all this stuff mean? And you could kind of feel this buzzy sense, in my opinion, under her works that really enthralls me. And I and that for me is like almost supersedes. uh, It allows me to forgive any parts of the books that don't kind of come together all the way. But that would not be the case with all readers. And that doesn't always pass your test. Um, john so it's interesting very interesting about how people to you know speculate on how people might react to her work and you know what's really going on in her books um but anyway i just want to mention she she has three other books that are worth reading but not quite in the same family as the books we've mentioned so far her debut novel is called the invisible circus it came out i think in the 90s and it's uh it's Very different from her other novels, there was a lot of, uh, in my opinion, growth and kind of development of her as a fiction writer. The Invisible Circus is kind of a coming of age story about a young woman traveling around in Europe, which is something that Jennifer Egan did when she was a young woman. Um, And there's a little bit of a mystery of her trying to find somebody, but it's it's much more conventional of a fiction than most of her other books. She also has one collection of short stories, which is a very interesting book, but kind of hit and miss, it's called Emerald City. And then she did put out another very good book, in my opinion, called Manhattan Beach. That's the book that kind of split A Visit from the Goon Squad in 2011 and The Candy House this year. Manhattan Beach came out in 2018 or 2019. It was very successful, but it was like a more of a historical novel set in uh, New York in the World War II years. Also a very good book, but not not as like um, edgy and kind of buzzy as the other books that we've been talking about so 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 have you read all of her books have i read all of her books yeah um uh, i believe i have yes trying to think of you, you read uh emerald city and you read uh the invisible circus Yes, I'm not, I'm not as big a fan of The Invisible Circus, but it, it's just interesting. In my opinion, she really made a huge... with Her first novel is The Invisible Circus, and the second one is Look at Me. And then I think the stories came out in between, and there's a huge leap, in my opinion, between The Invisible Circus and Look at Me. Like, they're very different kinds of books. You know, it's interesting, because I, I actually own The Invisible Circus, but I haven't read it. But just to hear your description of it, um, which I think it's sort of semi autobiographical, as you kind of implied. Um, but, it, it, and this is just sort of a comment, you know, it remind, there, there are chapters in Goon Squad as well as The Candy House, maybe more Goon Squad, that deal with like young women kind of traveling around Europe. Yes. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, she, she seems to have incorporated maybe a little bit of her own personal history that is still kind of showing up in some of her later books. Yeah, it's very interesting. She says frequently in interviews that she can't stand writing about herself, but she also admits that some elements of her own story find their way in. So for example, she often has, there's a lot of academics in her work and that's something that she has said she's personally uh, sort of fascinated with the world of academia and has a lot of personal (laughs) friends and professors. There is a mention in several books of, um, in, in A Visit from the Goon Squad, there's one character who basically travels around in Italy, which is uh, much like Invisible Circus and much like Jennifer Egan's own story. Um, okay. And then that comes up again in The Candy House. And then uh, you mentioned, you sort of noticed kind of astutely that there's um, a running theme of like s- psychology and or mental Struggles in her books, that speaks to her own life. So, you know, she admits in her interviews that there, you know, your life has a way of creeping in when you're a fiction writer. But she also says that she tries not to write about directly autobiographical stuff. So it's just interesting how that works. Yeah, and there's also, but, I know when she was a young woman, she's she was in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And so some of the that stuff that's in Goon Squad, which we'll get into this, but Goon Squad, you know, it centers very much around the music industry. And there's a bunch of stuff about the punk scene in San Francisco, which, you know, some of that comes from her own experience. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it's, and I can, and I can relate to that a lot. You know, somebody who writes fiction, it's hard to keep your own kind of, uh, I don't know, hangups, you know, I don't know if that's the word, but out of the stories that you write, and she's not immune to that either, but she, also has an amazing way of, uh, you know, imagining all kinds of different voices as we're going to get into when we talk about these two books, which I'll do a little segue right now. I'm going to ask you a horrible question, John. So so now we're going to turn our attention to the candy house and its prequel, uh, visit from the good squad. And I want to ask you, um, if you had to, this is, this is terrible, but if you had to uh, try in a succinct kind of way to tell a person off the street what the books, these two books, Visit <laughs> from the Goon Squad and The Candy House are about, just by way of entry into talking about these two books, how would you even attempt to do that? And I know it's a bad question. Well, why don't you take a shot at it and then we'll, we'll be off and running. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of hate you for that question. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really tough one. Oh gosh. I would say, because I have been thinking about both books, I would say, um, and it's kind of hard not to talk about now that the candy house is out, not to talk about them sort of together because they are so similar. Even even though they have some different preoccupations, I, I think readers should know that you know there's there's uh, both books involve a whole slew of characters who have different connections between them in both of the novels. But then the characters that are in the novel A Visit to the Goon Squad are also connected very much to most of the characters in the Candy House. So there's all kinds of like tendrils back and forth. Um, I think both, this is really tough, man, but I (laughs) think (laughs) it's going to sound ridiculous to say this. I think both of the books are interested in the human experience and kind of that's really broad, but like kind of what makes us us, you know, like our identity. Um, Mm -hmm. but But they approach them in different ways or kind of use different structures. The first one, she said this in interviews before, A Visit from the Goon Squad, she was particularly interested in exploring you know questions about time the 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 the, the famous uh, proust novel in search of lost time was a major influence on it and she decided to use the music she thought it would be an interesting idea to use the music industry as kind of a way to look at the passage of time and how it affects us as human beings how human beings ex- experience time and how they look back and you know, move forward in their lives, etc. So um that novel seems to focus on questions around when I say human experience, it's like you know, how we experience time and memory, but it does so through the lens of the music business, which is a that's a really broad way of describing it. Mm-hmm. But that that's how I would do it. Whereas the second book has some of the same preoccupations, but the second book is more overtly about technology. Right. And, and the ways in which um, uh, I would say, you know, modern technologies, especially as, you know, they, we get to the internet and social media and, and, you know, she's created, invented a certain type of technology which we'll, we'll get into, but how modern technology shape sort of our identity So I think each of the books kind of goes back to identity and who we are. And um, the first book, as I said, using kind of the music business as sort of a lens. The second book using technology and what we might call social media, but it's evolved in this book, um, uh, which we'll get into and the ways that uh, that sort of impacts our psyche and the way we think about ourselves and the way we we remember and process our lives, etc. So that's, that's kind of a, a really tough way to describe both of the books, but I think they both ultimately have to do with, you know, uh, human experience and the way, the way our, our identities and how, and what, what makes us truly human, what makes us authentic. Um, I don't know. I guess I'll stop it there because these are all very interesting questions um, that we all grapple with, but both of the books kind of deal with them in different ways. And yet there's a lot of like interconnecting threads between the two. And now I'm going to stop because it's just becoming gibberish. (laughs) No, actually, I think you're doing, you did a really good job. And I knew you were up to that, John, you know, because (laughs) you process books. (laughs) better than sometimes that then you realize just you know at least to me you know listening to you talk about them really hard question but like you know but these books are very hard to classify and um i remember but i think you did i think you generally did it right they're both about those kind of really broad themes human experience how we experience the passage of time what people are really like versus like you know mm-hmm. what kind of face they put on for the rest of the world um, right how we deal with uh, you know, stress or affliction, you know, and, and what things do we turn to when we're under, you know, when we're facing a series of difficult situations, either mentally or physically or what have you, and how we kind of grapple with these things in the modern world, you know, but there, and those are all part and parcel of these books. The big difference, I think you hit on it, was that Goon Squad was, you know, used its kind of template uh, as its kind of template, the music industry and like these characters she created, you know, weaving in and out of the music industry over uh, several decades. And and but then, if you remember, at the end of that book, it kind of sort of comes up to, or and and even goes over the edge a little bit. Um, at the end of Goon Squad, the last chapter does have this like prescient technology in it <clears throat> that she imagines. I think the the book was published in. 2010 and i think the last chapter is uh, like 10 or 20 i think it's 20 years into the future and it imagines this technology that has to do with babies and the translation of their thoughts you know so that you can know more about what babies are trying to say and what their experiences are if you remember that yeah. um, that's in the last chapter of the goon squad and then and then uh the candy house is just like you said it's more overtly has to do with technology. And she kind of turned her gaze to uh, social media in particular. And um, the main conceit in Candy House was she wanted to, and I can't say it as well as she does, but she tried to imagine sort of going forward uh, a new form of social media that had to do with the capturing of memories and um, being able to scan through your memories, and then not only could you capture your memories onto a device, but there is another, um, and this will get into some of the spoilers, another uh, product of the technology that she describes in the Candy House that allows you to take it one step further and upload your whole conscious memories to something called the Collective, which is right. this cloud-based uh, storage or um, resource where you can access the memories of not only yourself, but anybody else who shares their memories onto the collective. So she takes the whole technological angle to these two stories as a kind of, you know, way a, a huge step forward in the candy house. And much of the candy house deals with the implications of that technology. You know, and how it affects the different people that she creates in, in this second novel, some of which are either related to the characters from the first novel or are the same characters. So there's also kind of an intergenerational play going on in the second book as well. You know, so it's it's complicated. <laughs> it really is. There's tons of threads in both of these books, and they weave and wind together very intricately within each of the books but then across the books so it's like they're really kind of two sides of the same coin in a way Yep. Um, and but as we've mentioned you know they take sort of different approaches to some of the same general questions that Egan's very interested in and again you have you have characters in both of the books that are dealing with mental illnesses or you know the fallout of very of broken relationships and you know Again, it's no accident, I guess, from from Jennifer Egan's own personal experience that that would be in there. Um, but the, the second book, as we've said, you know, the Candy House is definitely more techie. And I don't know. I mean, uh, I have a I have a pretty big question about the technology in the Candy House that I wanted to ask you about. I, I mean, is there any reason we can't just dive into that or did you have more setup that you wanted to go through? No, I mean, we, I think we should uh, come up on a technical break here sometime okay. soon. So maybe do you want to do that and then continue? And then we'll start again with your question. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then maybe it'll lead us a little bit more into the candy house specifically. Yeah, I think I, you know, from here, this point forward, I do think it, it'd be best to just kind of you know focus on the candy house and but like you said you know there's a little little back and forth between that and the goon squad that we'll have to do inevitably but um we'll sort of get more into the details of the the newer novel as we go forward so let's let's take a quick break um we'll come right back and we'll pick it up from there with john's question okay why don't you go ahead? What was the question you wanted to ask me? Well, actually, before I ask it, I I feel like I should say this because we might forget to mention it later. Just there's so much to talk about with this book. But I think it's really important to point out. We haven't pointed it out to this point that another aspect of both of these books in particular, but Jennifer Egan in general, I would say is that she has kind of an experimental streak and Mm -hmm. she likes she likes to try different things that have basically never been tried before and try to find interesting ways to, uh, you know, to relate certain chapters of both of these books. And she's not, she said repeatedly in her interview, she's not trying to do it, you know, just to be innovative or whatever, but she tries to find a, a story that will correspond to an interesting way to tell it. So for example, you know, very famously, there's a chapter, in a visit from the goon squad that's told entirely in PowerPoint. Right. And she's talked exclusively, you know, extensively about how difficult that was to do. And she sort of had the idea. Um, And, you know, there are many false starts to sort of make that work, but it does miraculously sort of work in in the book, which is really interesting. And then she does the same thing again in a visit in uh, the candy house where she has, there are two chapters in the book that are really unusual and interesting. And one was told entirely in sort of 140, you know, character bursts um, that actually she did tell that story on Twitter before the book came out as sort of an experiment. So there's a chapter that's basically told through, I mean, she doesn't mention Twitter, but it's basically told through the medium of Twitter, which is interesting. And then there's another, um, chapter called see below which is told entirely through essentially email or or email or some kind of digital correspondence so instant messaging or something like that something like that so so it's pretty interesting i just wanted to mention that it's 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 only tangentially related to what i was going to talk about but i think it's important to for listeners who maybe haven't read either of these books to know that there's an experimental quality to them which i found you know really fascinating and especially because she was able to tell stories using these unusual and unorthodox methods but have them connect to the rest of the narrative and and that's really pretty impressive so i want yeah, to make there's sure a... go ahead no you were going to say something well just i'm sorry to cut you off but there was a really interesting story So i was doing a little background research after i read the candy house and she did. Who had schizophrenia, like a really severe form? It um, um,
1: took his own life, as you said,
0: which is very tragic. But uh, her, story her story, told through tweets. tweets, was originally called "Black Box." The chapter is called something different in mm-hmm. the Candy House, um, but it was published like ten years ago. And so, number one, it was it was done before they lengthened the the amount of characters you could use in Twitter. So it was when it was 140 and not 240, which is even more impressive. And secondly, she mentioned in an interview that her brother, when he was alive, got the chance to read that story and he found it worrisome. And he thought that she was was showing signs of psychosis. Having Mm -hmm. read the story when he read it, because it was so like um, that there's a lot of like paranoid qualities in the story. And it's like kind of a story where a lot of danger is, uh, or that's fraught with a lot of danger. And she (laughs) expressed that she was kind of gratified by the fact that somebody in her family who was going through psychosis thought that the story she wrote was fraught with psychosis, you know? So in a way she thought that that was a validation of what she was trying to do in the story. So that's very interesting. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing you get in both of these books. And uh, and I also just wanted to say really quickly, you know, the PowerPoint chapter from Visit to the Goon Squad, Visit from the Goon Squad, is very famous. Actually, that's one of my least favorite parts of both books. I just recently reread A Visit from the Goon Squad, and I never thought that that chapter really worked. And I still think it's kind of weird and doesn't really come together for me. So that's interesting. A lot of people really thought it was... Um, you know, really stood out. and I think it's kind of weird, but you know, anyway. well, and, and I think it gives readers uh, listeners a sense that you know these both of these books really, like I was saying, they they're not afraid to get experimental. She kind of swings for the deep seats a lot in, ter- in terms of trying different things, you could debate and people have, and people will endlessly, how much they work, but she's definitely taking huge chances and huge swings in both of these books, which you kind of have to admire, you know, on one level. Right. But so to go back to what my question was going to be in, in the Candy House. So you mentioned it. I mean, there's a huge element of the plot of the Candy House, which I guess we are spoiling. Anybody who reads this is going to see it in the early going, and it carries throughout the book. There's a character who was a very minor character in A Visit from the Goon Squad who, who in The Candy House has become like an Elon Musk type figure. You know, right. he's become this like tech superstar recognized all over the planet. And he's because he's invented a sort of platform, I guess, or technology that's called Own Your Unconscious And you described it before, you can basically upload your unconscious, your entire unconscious to the cloud. And then, as you said, later on, it becomes a little bit further where there's something called the collective, where everyone can access everyone else's unconscious, as long as they've opted in and decided to upload it to to the cloud so that anybody can access it. So... Uh, You can, you probably would predict just knowing me. Like, I I mean, that is like a huge part of this book. But uh, to me, there's just like a fundamental question: is why would anybody do that? You know, like this entire idea. uh, To me, I know you kind of have to go with it and you know accept it that that's a part of the world that we're dealing with in the book, The Candy House. But I personally just could never get it. Why would any? Why would so many people around the world? just decide to give up their entire unconscious and just put on the cloud for anybody to access. I couldn't get over that. Like, and I wanted to ask you about, I I wanted to ask you about that, whether you had the same kind of hang up or experience. I, you know, my head was saying to me, okay, you know, that's part of the world that she's describing, whether you believe it or not, but I just could not, it just seemed like such a fundamental part of the whole book. And yet, I just couldn't understand why anyone would want, how that could be a viable business, why anybody would want to do that, you know? And maybe you could argue people do do that in a way through Facebook or whatever, but, and, and that might be, I I don't know. I I, I found that to be, that kind of nagged me throughout the reading of the entire book. And my question for you is, did you have the same hangup or, or did you just not, and you were able to say, well, that's just part of the, World that she envisions because that I, I got to admit at the end of the day that was a little bit of a of a of a detriment to me with this book. I just couldn't accept why people around the world would just really do that. Did you have the same experience or not? Not quite, um, but I've been really drawn into all of her books, as I've been saying, and all of them for me have this kind of magnetic or hypnotic power. I'm kind of in her hand when she's writing in these books. Uh So uh, it, it wasn't, it didn't present as much of a problem for me. Um, But so what you're basically saying is, you know, you don't, you're not really sure that people would want to do on such a grand scale, what this technology in the candy house is offering. You're not really sure you can believe that people would want to do that. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, I couldn't. I, I couldn't quite buy that. And um, she even acknowledges in one of the interviews that I listened to. She said, like, she didn't acknowledge it quite like that, but she said, "I, I don't really know how this would work, but I just mm-hmm. decided to go with, go with it anyway." And that's one aspect of it. Like, how would that? I, I did ask myself early on, you know, because there, there are chapters that describe somebody accessing the subconscious of somebody else through this platform. And I, I thought to myself, well, how does that actually work? Is it like a movie that's being projected in the backs of your eyelids? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, so that was one, the, sort of the technical aspect of how that works. But then there's the aspect, like I said before, I just, I find it hard to buy that someone would want, like it's basically saying everything you've ever thought, Jude, or experienced in your life, no matter how embarrassing it is, no matter how, whatever, they just put it up there on the cloud. And, you know, it's probably going to help somebody and, and you're not having a hangup, ha- having hangups with that. I don't know. I, it, it, I don't know if it should have been a hangup for me, but it was. And it kind of sounds like, you know, it wasn't as much for you. And I, apparently many, many other readers. Well, I think part of it is, and it's, and it's a very good question. I mean, I think like you know, like uh, part of part of my experience reading the Candy House was like I was kind of because because it one of the things it one of the conceits it creates in the story is that there's this whole other subgroup that they call eluders, which yeah. um, people who uh, sort of promote and um, support the technology behind own your unconscious. Um, some of those people are kind of like. Almost like you know, actively seeking out eluders and trying to dissuade them from eluding the technology. You know, like they have like this whole separate wing of people who are trying to snuff mm-hmm. out the eluders, which is kind of interesting too. But I, right. I think what you, I, I mean, I think you can make the argument you're making that it's like you know, not something because oh, I was starting to say my experience was while I was reading the book was oh, I would you know, I was saying in the back of my mind, well, I would definitely be one of the eluders. I wouldn't be sort of drawn into this technology either. Why would you want to do that? Like you're asking, you know, and I feel like a lot of readers would probably say the same thing to, you know, sort of pat themselves and reassure themselves, you know, while they're reading the book that it wouldn't be them, you know, in this kind of sinister future world. But uh, one of the things that I think Egan is playing with and, and commenting on is, you know, a lot of those people, I think she's kind of saying that a lot of those people were the same people who probably wouldn't have said that they would buy into like Facebook or Twitter, you know, or Instagram or whatever. Right. And one of the things that I think is in many ways, I think, and I was going to say this to the end, but you know, we're kind of all over the place. Cause it's impossible not to be all over the place, but I kind of think the candy house might be kind of a superior novel to a visit from the goon squad. Um, and one of the things, reasons why I think so is that I think she kind of went further and deeper into some of these questions that she's interested in in this second book in a way that was kind of more compelling. And I I think the titles of the books, The Candy House is a much more it's a much better title, a much more interesting title to me than a visit from the Goon Squad. I never really figured out what she was trying to say with a visit from the Goon Squad. I got like the Goon Squad is sort of supposed to be time, or it's like it's minions. I, yeah. I you know, I, I never really figured out how that title worked and in fact john i remember when the book was first published in hardcover a visit from the goon squad because i was excited that jennifer egan was coming out with another book if you remember the hardcover was like this hand with an electric guitar you know and it was called yeah. a visit from the goon squad and i remember looking at it and being like what the hell is that supposed to be <laughs> you know yeah. and like it, it's almost it's almost like it's almost like the book was impossible to market. And she's commented that, that when the, a goon squad first came out, it just flopped commercially because nobody knew what it was, you know. And a hand with a guitar on the cover of it doesn't do anything to convey what that book is about. Uh, the Candy House is different. Like she, she says in a few places in the novel, The Candy House, she draws connections between, you know, of course, the famous fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel with the house made out of candy. And it's a metaphor for the technology. So it's in a couple of places, it says in the book, never trust a candy house. And I think one of the things that Egan is saying is that a lot of people may not believe that they would get sucked into a technology like this. But the allure of it might draw them in to the point where it's so ubiquitous. And I think she can fall back on actual social media and technologies that everybody has kind of fallen into you know, Facebook be an example, but you, you know, you, John Lovell, never fell into Facebook because you don't like Facebook, but most people have, you know, so maybe, maybe you wouldn't, you know, and, and I'm just being facetious. I'm just joking with you a little bit, but I think she's playing with that. And I think she might feel that even though she can't fully bring off exactly technically explaining how this all works, that, She obviously decided she could present it in such a way that you could believe as a reader if you were willing to suspend or, you know, make that leap that so many people would be interested in the technology that they would buy into it. And then I'll let you talk, respond to that in a minute. But another thing I just want to say about this is, it's interesting, just this week, and this I'm not going to say anything that's new to anybody in the human race, but just this week. My son finished with school. My youngest son, he's nine years old. He had a great year in third grade, and he really liked it. He came back home from the last day of school, and he was really sad. and he And he was crying, and he said, "Dad, I, you know, I just wish I could go back to the beginning of third grade and live it all again." <laughs> and then I said to him, "You know, just an innocent child." And of course, me being John, of course, I quoted. You know, this is this is our show, so I, I went back to the Rush catalog. And I said, well, what you're saying is basically the lyrics of Neil Peart from Rush in headlong flight. He says, well, I wish that I could live it all again, you know, for all you Rush fans out there. <laughs> but that concept, John, is what's behind this Own Your Unconscious idea. And, you know, people have an appetite for, which we can't do now, of course, going back and living their experiences again, And this technology gives them a chance to do it with their own memories in a way. And then it gives them a chance to go back and find out whatever happened to Susie that they dated in 10th grade. So I think the the leap that Egan is making just to conclude is that, you know, there would be enough there to appeal to human nature. And we've seen it happen with other forms of social media. Now, how do you want to respond to that? Like, what would you say? Like, it just, it just wasn't convincing to you. No, I I, I agree that that's what she's doing. I think that she's and she's done this with with other things in her books is that, you know, she takes an existing technology and kind of imagines it one or two steps further, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think she is commenting on in a way on like how we've all most of us, as you said, have in a way sort of uploaded our lives into Facebook and share everything on twitter or instagram or TikTok or whatever you know so that you know it's not like you know that that tendency uh, is in us already and i think she's sort of extrapolating that out to sort of the next degree with this idea of own your unconscious you know so I, i i agree with everything that you just said i think that she is playing with those ideas um You know, and and the book itself, you know, in a few places, it says, you know, it mentions how this uh, technology has had all these positive effects, like like helping people with dementia kind of remember what their lives were or who was in their lives, etc. You know, kind of, and it eliminates XYZ or whatever, you know, it sort of, in a couple places, it talks about what the benefits were and how it's kind of changed humanity you know, for the better a little bit. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was just, maybe it's like you said, I never went on Facebook, you know, and I'm one of the few people around the world, apparently who never did that. So that's could just be a personal thing for me. I can, I can see, you know, wanting to go back and revisit your own memories. I'm not totally sure why you'd want to just put your entire unconscious up online for anybody to browse through. You know, there's some kind of a, of a bargain that's made there that maybe it's just a personal thing. I just, I I can't really imagine making, you know, I don't, I don't really want, even if it's my, I would even, you know, question if it were my own children, you know, who want to like, there's a point in the book where uh, the, the child of the person who invents it goes back and he's like experiencing some of the experiences that the inventor had that were fundamental in his life, like his good friend drowning, for example. Right, right. and and his son kind of goes back and he gets the quote unquote experience what his what his father felt when that happened. And it was just kind of like I don't know. There's something about that that was a little bit off putting to me, both in the idea of actually doing that, and also you know just being able to believe it. But you know that said, I mean that was a hang up of mine in the book but I would agree with what you said earlier. Like I actually think I've, I've been thinking a lot about both books together I actually think I had a better time with, um, and I enjoyed Goon Squad a lot, but I think I, I found even more interesting the Candy House. Part Mm -hmm. of that is because it's so explicitly about technology and the way, and like human authenticity and the way technology, again, it brings us back to our current moment with social media. We've, Every, you know, we have talked about this personally, but many, many others have as well. You're putting up a version of your life on Facebook that is not your real life. I mean, it's only right. the highly real, you know, right. and they're right. very, yeah. And they're very interesting questions about, odd, you know, authenticity and identity. And, you know, is that really you being presented on Snapchat or on Instagram or whatever? Well, not right. really. Not really, because, like, you're only putting up the highlights, you know. So Mm -hmm. Egan's playing with all those questions in the Candy House, and I think those are very interesting questions. So, um, and, you know, the music business is interesting. Uh, I think the technological bent or aspect of the Candy House made it more interesting to me. Um, Mm -hmm. Somebody maybe who was more of a music fan or connected to the music industry in some way Might gravitate more towards Goon Squad, but I think in a weird way we didn't have totally the same experience with the book. But I, I think I would say I I enjoyed it more than a visit to the Goon Squad too. And and by the way, both of these books, there are a couple of things to say about Egan. Like I I find them both. The word I used with you many times is they're both virtuosic. You know, she's writing in a, in a, a totally different narrative style in almost every chapter in both books. She's covering yes. a, lot of, a lot of ground with technology and human psychology and relationships. And, you know, there's a chapter about going on safari in Africa. And like, so it's, it's just, it's virtuosic. That's the only word that I can think of. And also, I got to say, when you, when you listen to her interview, you mentioned this before, but she's such a, she seems so earnest and open and humble in a way. You can't help but love this woman when you hear her interviewed. Uh, I think she's just a uh, uh, just a hungry intellect, and um, I really think uh, she's doing some very very interesting things with her fiction that not many writers are doing. You know, so that that makes her books, you know, worth diving into in and of themselves. If you ask me, even though I will say that sometimes. They feel like really interesting experiments more than they do like deeply emotional stories, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really amazed and impressed by her work in general. You know that. And I agree with you about when you listen to her talk about it, she seems like a very real, um, engaging and compelling person. I mean, I don't know her at all, personally, but she just seems like that kind of person. Yeah. You know, and I, I I, remember vividly, and I've told you this before, but this is just more for the listeners. Because uh, I think she does, there's a certain thing that she has been able to do in all these books of hers that are more experimental. And I'm talking about these four again. Look at me, The Keep, and these two books, um, Goon Squad and The Candy House, where she throws into the air she's so curious and hungry intellectually and she's so smart that she can she has this incredible command over the story she's telling and the way that they all weave together um that i just find you know virtuosic or virtualic or whatever the word is is uh is apt i think you know and i remember very vividly reading her novel, look at me. And there was a passage right in the middle of the book and it centered around this terrorist from the Middle East. And he was on an American college campus and he was kind of posing as an American. I mean, obviously he was from another country, but he was integrating into the American culture. And as a college, older college student, or maybe a teacher, I can't remember exactly, but he sort of lured in and started dating this like 17 or 18 year old young woman in the story. And there was this one chapter told from his point of view where you're kind of in his mind while he's like drawing this young woman in to his world. And she had fallen in love with him because she was innocent and young and you're in his mind and he's talking about what he intends to do after her. And you know, how, uh, little you 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 discern from reading the chapter how little regard he has for her personally. He's just kind of using her for X Y Z, and he's going to you know th- essentially drop her off at the next stop or whatever on the way to whatever he was trying to accomplish in the United States. <coughs> but Egan had created such a convincing portrait of both characters that it, it read to me like a horror movie. I had young daughters at the time; they were like in grade school. And I thought this young woman has absolutely no idea what she's gotten involved with and she's going to get hurt, like really hurt. And I remember reading that chapter and I was just, it took my breath away. I was like, this is absolutely terrifying, you know, and she can do that, you know, through a variety of characters and variety of different stories. She writes these very convincing characters that you are fully immersed in their points of view. And and she does that in all four books, you know, to me. And I, I find that just incredible and impressive. And one thing I did want to ask you, did you want to say anything in reaction to that? Or did you? can I ask you another question? No, you, you can go ahead. Ask another question. Okay, so the, you brought up those two chapters in The Candy House. Um, there's one that's told essentially in tweets, even though you're right, it doesn't say anything about Twitter. And it's also like a riveting kind of spy story, you know? And the other one is this chapter, a longer chapter that unfolds via some kind of messaging system, email or whatever that, uh, I don't even know how I could describe it. it. has to do with, um, I don't know, like the, like somebody from the music industry in the beginning of it reaches out to somebody else, um, because they hadn't been involved in a documentary project 20 years earlier that's touched on in the Goon Squad novel. And they wanted to find some way to revive their career as a journalist. So they were wondering if they could connect with a musician. And then it, it anyway, I'm screwing it up, but it it spins off into this really broad net of characters, all trying to connect with one another and trying to um, bring together uh, you know, uh, a a documentary film that will revive the care, the, the relevancy of this musician, but also this filmmaker, but also this, and it just keeps expanding outward. Yep. all told in the form of emails, John, those two chapters in the candy house for me, I thought they were, those are the centerpiece pieces of the book in my view. And I thought they both had this incredible hypnotic power. Like you felt like for both of them, even though we're told in different media, you felt like something was, they were both something like I had never read anything like either one of those chapters before, I feel like. And they drew me in so much and they threw out so many interesting questions. And I just felt kind of hypnotized by them. And when I got to the end of both those chapters, I was like, that is incredible. I've never read anything like that, (laughs) you know. And I wanted to know if those chapters were striking for you, maybe not, and did, or did they stand out to you in any way other than just their form? Yeah, I was going to say they certainly stand out because of the style in which they're written. Um, I'm not quite – I don't think they had quite the same impact on me as they mm-hmm. did on you. As a matter of fact, I would even – its it's pretty interesting because I would even go so far as to say they kind of took me out of the book a little bit. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, in a way, they did for me, too. You know, yeah. they felt different, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they feel very different, and they're the only two chapters like that, and they don't feel the same as each other. I do feel like the one that's written in basically Twitter form, It, as you say, it tells us sort of like, and it's exciting, tells us kind of exciting sort of spy story. And even though it involves a character who links to other characters in the book, I felt like... When I got to the end of it, I felt like, well, that was a really kind of a cool story, but it doesn't – I have no idea why. Like, it doesn't really, other than a personal connection between one of the characters involved and others in the book, it doesn't mm-hmm. really – the rest of the book. I don't know. I, I, had, I had a little bit of a different experience with those chapters because I thought they were really fun and and obviously innovative, but they also kind of took me a little bit out of the main narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, you know, for me with the candy house and goon squad in a way, one of the, see, one of the risks of writing books, the ways in this way that she does is that, you know, she uses all these different narrative styles, but I guess, I guess part of the risk of that is that, you know, it, it does sort of sometimes feel like you're reading something out of another book. Like another example for me is the very last chapter of the candy house, which takes, sort of the child of one of the minor characters and it and it goes back in time to when this child was young and in a way like the action of that last chapter is before most of the rest of the book and yeah. it has it's it's a story that has to, strangely enough it came up earlier it has to do with baseball right and it it just has a totally different feel than the rest of the book and it has a various kind of a sentimental feel, which the rest of the book doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And I thought when I got to the end of that chapter, I was like, you know, that's a really sort of curious way to end this book, you know, and I, I, I'm not quite sure what I think about it. Like I, I thought it was an odd, an odd choice to end the book. Um, so, you know, I, and while i said before, like, I really, I found this book to be a lot of fun. And it's like, it's like her books, these books in particular, you know, I have, a, I have a good friend who read one of these books for the first time. And this friend is really into puzzles. And I think this friend was really intrigued by this book. And I kind of realized, well, in a way it's because these books are puzzles. Yeah. You know, like they have all these kind of like strange pieces and you're trying to fit them together while you're reading it. And then after you're reading it, you're kind of saying, how does this all fit together? I think one of the things I'm trying to say in a weird way is that with Egan, I've always felt this with her. I think there's a really, there's this kind of, you know, puzzle's a good word. There's this really sort of intellectual side to her work. It's like these very complicated, these novels are like very complicated machines and you're trying to figure out how all the pieces work together. You kind of feel like somehow they all work, but you're kind of at the same time trying to figure out why is this all work. And there's almost like a, I don't know, like an engineering or kind of like almost like a mechanical aspect to it. That is interesting. But at the same time, you know, whether they if you're the kind of reader who really connects to like characters in a deep way and or an emotional way. Uh, and and that's where you draw your satisfaction from. I don't know if Jennifer Egan is exactly your kind of writer. <laughs> you know, I, I think mm-hmm. she has emotional moments in her in her books and stories for sure. I mean, uh-huh. you, just, you just described one of them with like the, your reaction to that chapter and look at me and how you know you felt that kind of as a father. Right, but um, I would say in general. If you're someone who's who's looking for kind of a deep emotional experience with the book, you may not get that through her through these two books. But if you're someone who responds to, as I do, I kind of respond to both sides. But if you're someone who responds to like just, you know, intellectual curiosity and kind of like crafting something that's really complicated with many moving parts and seeing how it all fits together, then these books may appeal to you more. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, you know, it's, she's definitely the kind of writer that, you know, uh, would not appeal to everybody. You know, there might, there would probably just be like a certain amount of the population, the reading population who would really read these stories and just find them too kind of disjointed or too strange, you know, or even like too kind of like invasive in some way, you know, to, to really be kind of an interesting, entertaining story and, I don't know, for me, like, uh, you know, I say this in every episode, but I look at books like kind of like from a writer's perspective, and I just think they're incredible feats from a fiction writer's perspective. Like, I would never even try to imitate something like this. I mean, I just couldn't do it. I find them just intellectually impressive. But there's also, I remember when The Keep came out, I was so sort of, or when I was Learning about the keep and interested in reading the keep, I found a podcast or something. I was listening to her talk specifically about the keep. So this is back in like 2006, 2007. So it predates Goon Squad and Manhattan Beach and Kenny House and all that kind of stuff. But I remember her talking. There was two things that she said in like a lengthy podcast that really have stayed with me, you know, over the last 10 or 12 years or wherever it is, 10 or 15 years one of them was just a simple comment she said when i when i write fiction i'm i'm really not interested in writing fiction that's either from or about the heart what i'm interested in writing fiction is in writing fiction that it's from or about the gut and i thought that was a very interesting comment she said i'm not as interested in the heart as i am in the gut almost kind of yeah. like you know so that sort of speaks to in a way the comment you just made about how you may not be able to make emotional connections with her stories you know because she may not be as interested in human emotion as she is in like instinct or um impulse or whatever you know Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: and the other thing that she said another very simple comment but that i find interesting in the context of her work and this is this is really almost a uh, you know dealer's choice episode as much as a bxc reviews episode but anyway um she said once i think it was the same interview she said you know when i write fiction i'm just i'm trying to write something that is vital you know that's the word she used vital you know mm-hmm. and i i feel you know i would use that word in the context of that chapter i talked about in look at me you know, and many parts of other of her stories, like you feel like there's something uh, kind of real, even though it's not real. You know, it's like kind of the meta thing with fiction, you know, because sort of fictional stories can sometimes be more real than real. But also her books are about. In the main and I could say this about all of her books are about things that. That have consequence, you know. Whether it's, you know, our memories or time passing and wearing effect on us or, you know, the way we deal with our mental issues or, you know, and a lot of her stories, none of them do it directly, but they they sort of brush against matters of the spirit almost, you know, Mm -hmm. and she's commented that she, you know, she said this, like many people say in our age, John. It's not necessarily how you and I feel about this, but like, you know, that she does not want to write overtly about spiritual matters, but she doesn't consider herself not to have a belief system, you know, but she has kind of this sort of almost agnostic way of talking about it. If it ever comes up, she's not really sure what it is, you know, Mm
1: -hmm. but she's
0: not discounting, you know, the idea of a spiritual life or spiritual realities. And I also feel that in her books, you know, they're not dismissed. These things are not dismissed in her stories, but they're, they're certainly not explained and they're, they're not dived into at a, in a great depth, the way it would be, you know, perhaps like somebody like Flannery O'Connor or somebody, you know, a spiritual writer in a different sense. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we would both agree that, and maybe this is a way, you know, to kind of wrap this up because we could talk about it for a long time. But, yeah, you know, she does what great fiction writers ultimately do, which is kind of plumb the mystery of uh, human existence, really. And I, I think right. she's both sub- subconsciously and also consciously trying to do that, you know, um, in her own way. Um, but anyway, I mean, Egan. Certainly just a very formidable writer, um, one I would highly recommend. I mean, she's definitely, like you said, I mean, there are whatever you want to say about these two books. I've, I've never read books like them, and, you know, some of the chapters therein are just incredibly unique. And uh, you just never know what she has coming next. So she's definitely someone, the kind of writer I think we would both agree that, you know whatever she's pivoting to we're going to take a look at because it's uh she just has a such a unique and interesting way of approaching the subjects that she's interested in um that uh you know she's a very compelling writer i guess is a word that we used earlier and uh one that i think we would both highly recommend yeah absolutely i mean if you if you want to read fiction from a writer who's really probing so many deep and fascinating questions you know you you get you really got to read jennifer egan and sort of the last thing i would say about her is that she um um also is and this is in all her books she's smart enough to be funny so there's many moments of you know humor in her books oh yeah in in the candy house there was one part that took place in this country club with these rich white women who played tennis together some of their conversations about like, you know, the other woman's backhand and stuff like that. I I did. They're just hilarious, you know, (laughs) like, go ahead. uh, ahead. No, I was going to move on to something else, but did you want to say something about that? No, I was going to mention another chapter that I thought was really funny, but you might be going to the same place. No, well, um, no, I I was just going to say, I was going to segue a little bit, but you can bring it up. I was just going to say, she also, in particular, these two books, and I thought a Candy House* in, prediction, in particular also allowed her to create kind of many very sort of meta moments. And just the, I guess, the last thing I would say is, I there was one comment early in *The Candy House* where Bix Booten, the guy who invents On Your Unconscious, at the beginning of the book, is presented as having already invented kind of a ubiquitous social media technology. But when the book opens, he's in transition. He's looking for the next big idea. And that next big idea is own your unconscious. But he hasn't gotten there yet. And so he decides to reengage with this like group, this like club around uh, like Columbia University or New York University or one of those schools in New York of like professors and think tank kind of people who get together and discuss kind of ideas and he disguises himself because he's so, you know, ubiquitous. Everybody knows who he is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he goes to this group and starts reengaging with them in order to kind of dislodge whatever is going to prompt him in his mind. It's kind of a move of desperation. He wants to hear about ideas and see if he can come up with the next big thing. And at the end of, I think it's the opening chapter, one of the opening chapters, and at the end of the opening chapter, that, that chapter, you see him kind of in a domestic situation with his wife and a baby son, and he makes this comment, which is, I don't, I'm don't, i not sure if I can do it all again. And I thought that was a very meta moment, you know, with Jennifer Egan kind of talking through her novel about what she was doing to kind of, re, you know, take another run at the The ideas behind a visit to the Goon Squad. Yeah. And I also found that interesting in the sense of I could relate to it as a fiction writer, because every time you start another piece of fiction, that's what goes through your head. You know, I can't, I'm not sure if I can climb this mountain again, you know? And I Mm -hmm. thought that was kind of a very meta moment early in the story that, you know, kind of, you know, wink, wink from Jennifer Egan, you know? Well, and also along those lines, at the very, very end of the book, (laughs) the last chapter, which I've already talked about. But she makes these very explicit comments in the last chapter, in the very final paragraphs of the book, even where she's essentially saying, like, the collective, which is what she has in- invented in this book, is basically what fiction writers are all about. You know, right? <laughs> That's what fiction is for—is kind of creating this collective, you know, <laughs> set of not memories but like consciousness for everybody. And there were there were several lines at the very end of the book where I, I I kind of wrote in the margin. I was like, "Well, she's basically talking to herself here," or "Yes, wait." It almost felt like you know justification for everything that preceded it. You know, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. There were definitely, and she's smart enough to kind of like add those moments in there, and you know, knowing that you know readers will pick up on that if they want to, but. You know, uh, it's it's a, these books, these novels are, are very impressive. They're kind of intellectual sort of puzzle boxes in a way, but um, there's a lot of satisfaction in that for a certain kind of reader. And certainly, like you said, if you're interested in some of these philosophical questions about what makes us human and the ways that technology tends to impact some of those thoughts and questions, you know, these books are probably for you, so yeah yeah totally well uh anyway that was an interesting discussion i hope we didn't lose everybody like two seconds into it because it's a complicated (laughs) journey we just went on but i i think we can say we highly recommend both books and we recommend the work of jennifer egan if you want to read very provocative and intellectually engaging fiction uh she's your lady Yep. And so let's wrap it up there Let's listen to some more music And then we'll come back really quick We'll talk about what we got next on the reading docket And we'll tease episode 52 Right on <laughs> All right, here we go. John, what's uh, next on your... Re- well, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll do it first because I'm going to ask you to tease episode 52 for us, if you don't mind. Okay. okay. So, next up for me, um, I have a lot of interesting books coming up, but um, every once in a while I do this, John. So, I don't have to go on with it at length. I'm currently reading nonfiction. I'm, you know, doing some research for this burgeoning book that i'm trying to get off the ground and that's fun and everything but you know every once in a while you just got to go back to the fountain so (laughs) i'm going to be (laughs) and you know it's coming but you know I, uh, i know it's coming i gotta do it i am going to read a book by one of my most beloved writers that's uncle stevie stephen king i usually am good for one or two books a year from Stephen King. I love his books, uh, but I've never read, I'm excited, I've never read this book Is one of his, you know, oldest and more most famous books um, that he has freely admitted he wrote completely loaded on coke, like he can't even remember writing it. So that should be interesting. <laughs> and the book is called, <laughs> the book is called Cujo from the 70s about a rabid dog. And I honestly can't wait. It's going to be wild. And it's probably going to be pretty crappy in some ways, but it's going to be great fun. And, uh, you know, that's where I'm going. I'm going under that old log or whatever it is that the dog runs under at the beginning of the movie and gets, you know, bit by a rabid whatever. And, you know, turns into like a drooling killer. So I'm looking forward to that. What's coming up for you? (laughs) You got to love it. You got to love it. Going back to the uh, Uncle Steve, well you know, I love it. That, that's going to be a lot of fun. Well, uh, what's next for me isn't quite the same vibe, but um, it's, I realized, you know, I try to, as we've said many times, try to try to move in different directions with my reading. And I kind of realized it's been a while since I've read a, a good book of history. Um, and right. I do like, to, I do like to read history and this is sort of scratches at it, but it kind of goes in other directions too. Um, it's actually a book I bought for one of my sons when he graduated from high school. I don't think he's ready yet. Someday he probably will. Um, but it was an ambitious pick on my part, you know, so, something that I figured if he doesn't read immediately, he'll sort of grow into maybe. But I'm really, I'm really curious about it, too. And it's actually the first time I've read this uh, particularly esteemed American historian named Doris Kearns Goodwin who is um, probably maybe best known for a book she wrote called Team of Rivals that has to do with uh, the Lincoln presidency and his cabinet. It was mm-hmm. famous, famously, uh, uh, supposedly a very influential book for President Barack Obama. Um, but she also was the, um, she worked for many years with Lyndon Johnson and wrote a number of books on Lyndon Johnson. But she has a fascinating-sounding book that's called Leadership in Turbulent Times, and it looks at the leadership styles of four different U.S. presidents and tries to extrapolate, you know, what it was that made them good leaders. So it's kind of, you know, it's a history book, but it also has to do with, you know, leadership in some way. Um, And I just thought it sounded really interesting. So I've never read her before, never read this book before, but that's going to be my next read after I finish your book so it's it's certainly going in a different direction but i'm i'm really looking forward to i mean she's a she's a widely esteemed historian certainly has spent the majority of her life you know studying american presidents and his, u.s history i think there's got to be some interesting stuff to be gleaned from reading a book like that from someone as accomplished as her so i'm i'm really looking forward to diving into that well that is that is a good one that's very John F level but uh, yeah I, I like history too actually I don't read it very much at all but I uh, I like reading books like that so I'm looking forward to hearing about it that's uh you know she's a very esteemed historian of course so that's going to be cool that's a and good a choice huge, and a huge baseball fan to bring it back around she's written at oh, least right. one she's written at least one book about uh being a baseball fan so you there you go can't argue with that. So uh, why don't you help us uh, to tease what's coming up next or episode 52? Yeah. So just to wrap this up here, uh, we appreciate everybody coming back to the show. We've, as, as we said at the outset, took a little bit of a break, but it's good to be back. And we're going to keep going. The next episode, episode 52, what we're, we're going to do something a little bit different. What we're going to do, we're actually going to, it's certainly different because we're going to talk, a, the entire episode is going to be about books that we haven't read which is unusual for us. But what we wanted to do was try, we wanted to consciously do something a little bit different. And we decided we would look at the rest of the year, the calendar year for 2022 The years, about half over. So we're looking at the second half of the year. We're going to do a little research and we're going to find out books that are forthcoming. So uh, any kind of book that may be coming out the next calendar year, we may cheat a little bit. And, you know, if one of them gets pushed back to early 2023, whatever. But we're basically going to de- dedicate an entire episode to books that we're looking forward to for the rest of the year that are coming out. Why we are looking forward to them? And it may give us a chance to explore some other writers that we've never talked about on the podcast before or maybe never read before. But we've just, uh, you know, heard about books that are coming that sound really interesting. So we're going to sort of chart a course forward for the rest of 2022 and kind of recommend, you know, uh, uh prematurely recommend, I guess, books that are coming that our listeners may want to check out for one reason or another. But I know I started looking at, I, I was aware of a few books that are coming in the near future that I'm excited to read so we can get into some of those. And then I started doing a little research and learned about some more books that are coming. Some of them are by authors that I follow for quite a while. Some of them are by authors that, that we've never read before. So I think it's just kind of be a uh, big old mishmash but it should be a lot of fun and something a little bit different for the podcast so i hope you'll join us for that that's episode 52 yeah that's gonna be cool i kind of you know at first when you brought it up i was like well you know I, I mean how do we talk for a while about books we haven't read but on the other hand uh, you know this is something that at least i do all the time just keep my eye on the you know the sources whatever sources tell you about books that are coming out and you know, just trying to build up excitement and we tell, we talk, it's, but I guess what I'm saying is it's part of this, this ongoing exchange that we've had for all this time. This is definitely a part of it. Like we learn about books that are coming, we tell each other about it and we like sort of riff on them. So this is very much a piece of that whole conversation. So it's going to be fun to do something that we have not done before. Yeah, I I think so. You're right. It's something that we've always done. You and I would together and that's the basis of the whole show kind of, you know, um, making public, public the conversation we've always had going on around books anyway. So it should yeah, be fun. Yeah, in fact, I, I think I did that last October. I think it was around October when I first – they dropped into the media that the Candy House was going to be published in April. And I remember sending a link to an article to you saying that, and I was just kind of like, holy shit, you know, look at this. <laughs> Well, you know, there you go, and, and then we riffed on it a little bit then. Yeah. So I, I remember how excited I was to hear that. So this is a, anyway, this is an extension of that. So that'll do it for episode 51. Uh, I hope we didn't kind of really mangle, uh, you know, Jennifer Egan's catalog. And I hope we had a discussion that's worthy to, you know, some of the great books that she has written. I hope people will go and check out her work if they haven't uh, done so already. And we want to thank everybody for joining us around the world. And we'll catch you next time for episode 52. Sounds good. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye now.